sun is hot and that old clock is moving slow And so am I Workday passes like molasses in wintertime But it's July I'm getting paid by the hour and older by the minute My boss just pushed me over the limit I'd like to call him something I think I'll just call it a day Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking at John Barleycorn by Jack London. This is actually the second episode on John Barleycorn. You should go back and listen to my first episode, which introduces the first part of, of this book, this autobiographical novel, if you will, or just an autobiography. It's one of four yeah, it's one of four memoirs by Jack London, including People of the Abyss and the Road, which I already looked at, and The Voyage of the Snark, which I don't think I'll be getting to in this this podcast because I, I look at the these works of by writers collected in the Library of America, and they, they just have two volumes of Jack London. There's certainly room for a third volume by Jack London, and I wonder if they will ever get around to publish it. You have things like The Red Plague, or the Scarlet Plague, you have the Voyage of the Snark, you have a few other novels that aren't collected in there. But um, um, as it is, this is the third uh, three of well, the three of of Jack London's four autobiographical works are included in the volume I'm looking at now, and this is the final of them, published in I believe it was 1913, not too long before he died. So in, in the f- first part of this series on John Barleycorn, we looked at Jack London's early experiences with, with alcohol. And we learned a few important things in there. We, we learned mostly about how his distaste for alcohol as a beverage. And, and we might need to take that with a bit of a grain of, of salt. We know Jack London becomes an alcoholic and it may have had an impact on his death. Certainly addiction and... Um, Perhaps other drugs were involved in his um, his death, but certainly alcoholism played a role in his early death at age forty. But he sort of denies ever liking the taste of alcohol as a young man, and you know I suppose we can just believe it if we want, or maybe he's trying to apologize or or justify his own addiction. I don't know. But what he talks about in the first half is how his distaste for the beverage itself was distaste was, was balanced by his need for sociability. And he really stresses in the first half of the book how important alcohol was just for men being men together. And he talks about alcohol as almost something that, pe- that trains people into proper behavior of manhood. Um, something it has a lot to do with respectability and behavior and treating each other well. Uh, it has a lot to do with work too, just the experience of work. You know, people working together as men. It's very masculine. The whole narrative. Women are barely there. I, he talks about his wife, Charmian, Carmian, in the beginning and the end briefly. But women are basically there in the back. Are only there in the backdrop of this narrative. It's about men drinking and working together. And alcohol becomes a glue of the sociability. And he's critical of alcohol, of what he always calls John Barleycorn, because of its kind of manipulation of this need for male sociability. It's almost like a hijacker. And it's, it's or a parasitic, it has a parasitic relationship with this male sociability. However, he can't imagine this male sociability taking place without alcohol. And that's partially because the world he lives in, the society he grew up in, and all that. 
We also saw how he divides being drunk or the drunks between those who get drunk in the head and those who get drunk in the body. The later uh, something, the later he did something he denies falling victim to. And again, here is he just justifying himself? I don't know if chemically or biologically there's such a distinction between being drunk in the head and drunk in the body. But we've all had these experiences where we've seen someone who's like stumbling around and vomiting and can't ma- handle themselves and kind of loses control of their bodily functions. London says he never gets that way. He gets weird thoughts. And that's something we're going to talk about in this episode. He gets strange, odd thoughts, but he doesn't become like a staggering, stumbling drunk. And here's where he uses the metaphor of the, you know, seeing pink elephants. That's reserved for the people who get drunk in the body. Uh, But he and other people, intellectuals, the sensitive, I suppose, are people he thinks gets drunk in the head. It's a different experience, he believes. But mostly in the first half of the book, we learn about not not only about alcohol, but about Jack London's early working life in San Francisco and Oakland, his time as a pirate, uh, as an oyster pirate, his time. Um, what else did he do? His time as a ceil- on a sealing voyage and his working in a laundry, something he recounted in Martin Eden, uh, fictionalized in that case. But in all these cases, working in San Francisco and Oakland or the Pacific Ocean, friendships and communities he formed as a young man were really key to those experiences and alcohol formed a part of all of those all right so in the second half of john barleycorn london begins to discuss his growing dependence on alcohol and the role that plays in his life as a writer and then his final judgments on drink but most importantly he philosophizes on what alcohol does to one's perspective this is something he calls the white logic It's something that seems to come to drinkers who are intellectual or sensitive. It certainly is not something he thinks happens to those who get drunk of the body. Now, how to describe what the white logic is? Well, the white logic is essentially the understanding, understanding kind of this almost Nietzschean logic that God is dead. There's no objective meaning to life. We're really meaningless. It's, a, it's kind of a cosmic depression. It's this understanding that our life, our existence is meaningless in the big scope of, of creation, you know, which itself is just a random thing. So Jack London is an atheist and the white logic is a very atheistic uh, belief. It's kind of this belief in the futility of existence. Now, the people who fall prey to that may might turn to religion. But he thinks drinkers kind of experience it in a special way. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to develop this later on when we get to that part of the book towards the end. But it doesn't seem to be something that the people who just get drunk in the body, who get drunk for drunk's sake, who don't experience this kind of intellectual visions and, you know, sentiments when they're drinking. Now, I, I don't think he believes that people who drink are, are like instantly creative, right? But it's something that happens to creative people or people who are philosophically attuned when they drink, right? I think he rejects this idea that somehow drink or chemicals of any sort can make one more creative. He actually talks a lot, a lot how he, when he's writing, tried to avoid drinking before he's got his writing done for the day, like the thousand words a day thing. And by the way, it's not just Jack London who has this advice for you to write, if you want to be a writer, to write a thousand words a day. I mean, even Stephen King talks about this. I, I think he even wrote more. I think it was a little bit more than that, like four or five pages. But, you know, you got to write every day and you got to sit down and make it a discipline, you know, because even it doesn't look like a lot when you write a thousand words. Did I say pages? I meant words. When you write a thousand words, it doesn't feel like a lot to write that much. But you've had it up over a year. You know, if you just write a thousand words a day, 
two pages single spaced or so. At the end of a year, you got 365,000 words, which is like four, you know, three, four novels or, you know, whatever you're writing. Nonfiction books might take a little bit longer to research and write, but just do it sitting down every day. So um, even if it's just a couple hundred words a, a, a day, you're still getting like a book every other year, uh, depending on how much of that stuff you write is quality. So it's it's good advice, and I guess writers have always sort of known this. Anyway, so I'll come back to the white logic and this kind of depression that he faces and what he sort of works through towards the end of this episode. But um, let's jump in about halfway through the novel. I normally do chapter-by-chapter examinations. I did it with Martin Eden and other works. I won't do that in this book just because the chapters are so short and there are so many of them and they're sometimes kind of repetitive. There are a lot about his life experiences here and there. So I'm rather just jump into the big picture and explore the themes of what this novel does, sort of like what I did in the last episode. And really, the first question we need to ask here as we approach the second half of John Barleycorn is how was it that alcohol went from being just this social glue, as described in the first part of the book, and it was something that we want to believe was true when he was in his youth, but it became something that he really depended on. And he, he confesses, as he, he sort of admits, that he became an alcoholic at a point in his life. I'm not sure how much he would... You know, he, I don't think he's ever like a, an AA member who might say, you know, I'm an alcoholic, even if you have been drinking for four or five years. I think for him, alcohol dependency is is, is not so much a disease, but something, a, hab, a habit, right? Something that's kind of worked into you. Now, I don't know that for sure. and um, I'm not sure how much, how, where the science even was on alcoholism at the time this was written. But it, it seems for him, it's really something that's, it's a, it's a habit. And if you stop drinking, it's no longer affecting you in the same way. I'm not even sure how I feel about this idea that, you know, if someone hasn't picked up a, a beer in 10 years to still say I'm an alcoholic for life or something. I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm kind of, I kind of hold with William James that this thing, you know, habit is what matters in the end is what you actually do is your, is your character. But anyways, um, but this gets us right to the question of how did he become a, an alcoholic? And that's, we're not surprised to learn it's habit and repetition that makes him an alcoholic. The same kind of habit and re- repetition that made him a writer. The same kind of habit and repetition that made Martin Eden a writer. You know, that's what does it. The same kind of habit and repetition that makes someone part of the working class even. Something that Jack London certainly knew a lot about and experienced. So that's what it comes down to in this part of the the book. We have, of course, reminded here, and this never goes away in the book, really. It may be a little bit towards the end when Jack London becomes more of an established writer and he's kind of, he talks about more drinking, just kind of on his big home, relaxing. But when he was still in his working life, it's just alcohol was always present. Alcohol was simply there. It's just part of the culture and in particular part of its masculine culture. But, and he's already become quite aware of what alcohol provides him and you know, good and bad. So here's what he says. This is chapter 24, if you have a copy of this. He says, And I, the longtime intimate of John Barleycorn, knew just what he promises me. Maggots of fancy, dreams of power, forgetfulness, anything and everything save whirling washers, revolving mangles, humming centrifugal ringers, and fancy starch in unterminable processions of duck trousers moving in steam under my flying iron. 
And that's it. John Barleycorn makes his appeal to weakness and failure, to weariness, to exhaustion. He was an easy way out. And he was lying all the time. He offers false strength to the body, false elevation to the spirit, making things seem what they are not, and vastly fairer than what they are. But it must not be forgotten that John Barleycorn is protean, as well to the strengths and exhaustion does he appeal, too much strength, to superabundant vitality, to the ennui of idleness. He can tuck in his arm in the arm of any man in any mood. He can lump the net of his lure over all men. He exchanges the new lamps for the old, the spangles of illusions for those drabs of reality. In the end, cheats all who traffic with him. All right, it's a very complex and, and honest portrayal of that. You know, if you're depressed and exhausted at the end of the, end of the day, there's Jolly John Barleycorn. If you're bored after a day of being at home and lonely, there he is for you. He's fitting into all these sorts of needs that one may have just in their their day-to-day life and that's again part of it's it's evil if you will. i don't know if evil is the right term but is it's insidiousness the way he lies to you he offers something that he really can't provide now as london talks about becoming a writer and his his path is sort of like martin eden is in a lot of ways if you read that novel but as he became a writer he still lacked this desire to drink. He keeps repeating this. Now, again, I don't know if he's justifying his, his addiction to his readers or trying to deny it to a degree. It's it's strange in a book called Alcoholic Memoirs that he's so careful to separate himself from the thing he's writing about and say, you know, I didn't like it or I wasn't an alcoholic yet. It's really not till the end of the novel that he sort of confesses, maybe I started, you know, drinking alone and, you know, maybe it was becoming a problem towards the end of his life, but or towards the end of the narrative anyways. But he talks here about he still lacked the desire to drink. It was still mostly a social act for him. And he talks about how even when he was like traveling to, where was it, to Japan as a war correspondent, he had alcohol with him, but it was something he opened up when someone would visit his tent or, or whatever. It was, but what he lacks at this point in his life is any fear he used to have for alcohol, any kind of anxiety or nervousness. It, it, he just got used to it. It was part of his life, almost an old friend. Desire, however, was far from his mind. But over time, he was beginning to, put, beginning to put, become what we would call a seasoned drinker. Now, in chapter 28, he discusses his bouts with depression. And, and these are well known. They're, they're, they're part of his experiences on board the Snark. It's a two-year voyage. It's when he wrote Martin Eden. And he was well, it was well known that he was very depressed during that period and he was drinking a lot. And a lot of his frustrations come out in, in that book, Martin Eden. And I haven't actually read The Voyage of the Snark, his memoirs of that time, but there's enough hints in his other works about this. This was a major event in his life. Now, he talks about his bouts of depression in Chapter 28, and he also talks about how socialism became the way he dealt with his depression at that time, you know, and he depression or socialism was this community that it's almost, a, a, almost presented here as almost an imagined community, something that's filling in gaps that he might have elsewhere in his life. Now, I don't remember. I don't think he comes out and says socialism, but he talks about the people. So he says, quote, but the people saved me by the people was I handcuffed to life. There was one fight left in me and here was the thing for which to fight. I threw all precaution to the winds, threw myself with fiercer zeal into the fight for socialism. I laughed at the editors and publishers who warned me and who were 
sources of my hundreds porterhouses a day and was brutally, brutally careless of whose feelings I hurt and how savage I hurt them. As the well-balanced radicals charged me at the time, my efforts were so strenuous, so unsafe, so insane, so ultra-revolutionary that I retarded the socialist development of the United States by five years. In passing, I wish to remark at this late date that it is my fond belief that I accelerated the social development of the United States by at least five minutes. It was the people, and no thanks to John Barleycorn, who pulled me through my long sickness. And while, when I was convalescent, came the love of women to complete the cure. So he, he talks about how he gets kind of, kind of very overzealous with this socialism, so much that he gets criticized by other socialists. But, you know, it's something that it gave him a meaning, right? And he, you feel him talking this way a little bit when he, when, in Martin Eden where he seems to think that had Martin Eden reached out to the socialists, maybe he could have avoided his own depression. Now, Martin Eden's not an alcoholic. Um, there's a moment in his life where he's drinking a lot, but he's never presented to us as an alcoholic. Now, this depression he talks about, he sometimes calls it the long sickness. It's certainly something he experienced at this point in his life. I guess it would be his mid-30s or so. It's a big part of his life during the Snark expedition voyage. And it's also deeply connected to his later discussion on the white logic. But drink, he says, still doesn't enter his life as anything more than a social action. But then he starts making drinks every day. And he starts making it an everyday thing. And especially when he's writing, he talks about how he would not start drinking until after he wrote his thousand words for the day. And then sometimes he would cheat. And sometimes he would drink a little bit before he got around, like one before he started writing or something, and then a couple, and then, you know, you'd miss days of writing or whatever. So it kind of creeped in, but he seems to be, have been fairly disciplined in most of his writing life. It's also funny that he really got particularly fond of cocktails. It's somewhere in chapter 29 that Jack London confesses that his transition to alcohol dependency, you know, is, is really somewhere in this chapter 29, but it's at the same time where he's talking about he's getting hooked on cocktails. And I, I think I joked about this in the previous episode, that maybe all John Barleycorn really needed to seduce Jack London fully was a chaser, something he didn't really have. And, you know, he was drinking a lot of hard liquor earlier in his life, and he didn't like the taste of it, but he liked cocktails. So I found that kind of tragic, but there's a kind of a humorous side to it if you're cynical enough. And, you know, he does talk about starting to want to drink at certain times of the day, which is a real sign of addiction, right, when you... When at a certain time of the day, you just need to have a drink, you know, happy over time. That, that's sometimes a sign that things are getting a little bit out of control. And he, it's in chapter 31 that he sort of confesses it. Quote, I was always willing to drink when anyone was around. I drank by myself when no one was around. Then I made another step. When I had a guest for a man of limited drinking caliber, I took two drinks to his one. One drink with him. The other drink without him. And of, of which I did not know. I stole that other drink. And worse than that, I began the habit of drinking alone when there was a guest. A man, a comrade, with whom I could have a drink. But John Barleycorn furnished an extenuation. I was a wrong thing to trip a guest up with excess of hospitality and get him drunk. If I persuaded him with a little caliber into drinking with me, he'd surely, I'd surely get him drunk. What could I do but steal that every second drink or else deny myself the kick equivalent to what he had got out of half the number? End quote. Now, what you have here, of course, is him talking about drinking alone, him using any excuse to drink. Uh, and here we got the excuse of, well, I don't want my the person I'm drinking with to get drunk, so I can't drink one-to-one -one with him, or he, I drink him under the table, so I drink two for every one. And it, it's all a justification. 
obviously. So it, by the time you get to chapter 31, which is really towards the end of the book for all intents and purposes, because you got to consider the last five chapters is just this philosophical discussion of the white logic. You know, he's he's pretty much confessing his alcoholism, although he's a bit cagey about it, even at the at the end. At this part of the book, he starts to describe in more detail his voyages and works, his, his voyage on the snark, his time in Japan as a war correspondent, his travels in Australia, and I've already sort of talked about these things. All of these journeys were accompanied with John Barleycorn. He had this discipline, but it begins to weaken. But it's starting in chapter 35, which where the novel pretty much ends, and Jack London takes on the issue of the white logic more seriously. And, and we have to kind of figure out what this is all about so all along you've been th you think you've been reading this alcoholic memoir but actually you find out you get thrown into this philosophy uh, discussion this is the beginning of chapter 35 but the freight had to be paid john barleycorn began to collect and he collected not so much from the body as from the mind the old sickness which had been purely an intellectual sickness rescrewed dead Recrustated? That's a weird word. Okay. The old ghosts long laid, laid lifted their head again, but they were different and more deadly ghosts. The old ghosts, intellectual in their inception, had been laid by the sane and normal logic, but now they were raised by the white logic of John Barleycorn. And John Barleycorn never lays his ghosts at the raising. For this sickness of pessimism caused by drink, one must drink further in quest of the anodyne that John Barleycorn promises but never delivers. How to describe this white logic to those who have never experienced it? It is perhaps better first to state how impossible such a description is. Take Hashid land, for instance, the land of enormous extensions of time and space. In past years, I had made two memorable journeys into that far land. My adventures there are seared in sharpest detail in my brain. And I have tried vainly with endless work to describe any tiny particular phase to persons who have not traveled there. So... He doesn't quite define white logic. I mean, there's not a line in here where he says, this is what the white logic is. It's certainly a depression. It's certainly a kind of a fatalism. It's a kind of a belief that this life has no meaning. Um, alcohol, this is, John, this is Jack London again. Alcohol tells truths, but its truths are not normal. What is normal is healthful. What is healthful tends towards life. Normal truth is a different color and a lesser order of truth. Take a dray horse. Through all the vicissitudes of its life, from first to last, somehow, in unguessingly dim ways, it must believe that life is good, that the drudgery and harness is good, that death, no matter how blind instinctually apprehended, is a dread giant, that life is beneficent and worthwhile. To the last stumble of its stumbling end, this dray horse must abide by the mandate of the lesser truth that is the truth of life and that makes life possible to persist. Let me stop there. That's one part of this longer quote I want to look at. So we're the dray horse. We're drudging through life in our horrible job, our miserable family. On some level, now we're blinkered. Now imagine a, a workhorse is blinkered, right? They, they can't see it. Now what we're blinkered by is maybe the total futility of life. The fact that we're worm food when we're dead. Right, that there's no afterlife. The God is dead realization. And we hide from that. So we put on these blinkers. Maybe they're religion. And he talks a lot about religion here. Or it might be optimistic philosophy like William James, who's actually called out in this section of the book. 
as kind of like an anodyne, right? Now, for the drinker, they're not blinker. They, 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 or at least the drinkers who realize the white logic. I, I think the people who get drunk in the body don't quite experience this, according to, to London. But the drinkers who see the white logic, they're not blinkered. And so they experience this futility, drudgery, this, the lesser truth of life, which is kind of a depressing realization that we're finite. And so we turn to drink. Drink becomes our anodyne, right? And it doesn't really, pro it doesn't give us anything. It just sucks us deeper into the white logic. It's not a way out. It's, it's a total fatalism. It's a total embrace of nihilism almost. All right, next. This is right, I think, the very next part of the quote. Um, to man alone among animals has been given the awful privilege of reason. Man with his brain can penetrate the intoxicating show of things and look upon the universe brazen with indifference towards him and his dreams. He can do this, but it is not well for him to do it, to live and live abundantly, to sting with life, to be alive, which is what he is, which is to be what he is, sorry. It is good that man be life-blinded and sense-struck. What is good is true. And this is the order of truth, lesser though it may be, that man must know and guide his actions with the unswerving certitude that is absolute truth, and that in the universe no other truths, order of truth can obtain. All right, so Jack Lander wants us to face this truth. So he's not really accepting, I guess, the, the mindless masses who maybe turn their back on the white logic fully. You know, who just kind of believe in the afterlife. He, he doesn't seem to fully think, he doesn't think that's the way to go, obviously. But he doesn't think John Barleycorn and, and the kind of, and just drink and alcoholism and despair is the way to go either. Now he goes on and, and talks about some of this, what, what you think, the kind of thoughts that go into your head when you're drinking and you're aware of this white logic. Quote, I'm aware that within this disintegrating body, which has been dying ever since I was born, I carry a skeleton, and that under the rind of flesh, which is called my face, is a bony, noseless death's head. All of this does not shudder me. To be afraid is to be healthy. Fear of death makes for life. But the curse of the white logic is that it does not make one afraid. The world sickness of the white logic makes one grin jostily into the face of the noseless one, and to sneer at all its phantasmagoria of living. I look about me as I ride, and on every hand I see the merciless and infinite waste of natural selection. The white logic insists upon opening the long closed books, and by paragraph and chapter states the beauty and wonder I behold in terms of futility and dust. About me is murmur and hum, and I know it for all the gnats swarming of the living, piping for a little space its thin plaint of troubled air. Now, it's in this description of the white logic, all these things I've been talking about, and especially I think with this, like, this, idea, this noseless one, that's our, that's our death. The noseless one is our skull beneath our face. Right? We, of course, our skull doesn't have a nose, right? It's there. We live our lives pretending it's not there. It's only in a kind of our bleak, fatalistic moments that we're there. And it's when we're with John Barleycorn at our most intimate with him that we're experiencing this, these thoughts. We experience the, the nameless one. And what to do about this? Do we turn our back on it with some false hope? Can you even go back there at one point once you accept the white logic? It's not even clear you can 
once you realize this, like just go to church and suddenly forget about it. I know people maybe have this experience and they might talk about it. You know, Glenn Beck, you know, I'm in the gutter, born again from the gutter, saved from addiction, all these things. So maybe it's possible. I'm kind of closer to Jack London's point of view on these things, though, that it's, it's, it's hard for me to kind of go back. Anyways, it's in his description of the white logic that London takes on the role of a philosopher. Alcohol lies to us, but it is a lie we have all accepted and need to accept, that our life has some meaning beyond our atoms and molecules in meat. It's hard to prove. The white logic is not the feeling or the thoughts one has while drinking, though. It's perhaps the thoughts that one who are susceptible to drink dwell on. There's a certainly a connection between John Barleycorn and the white logic, but it's not entirely clear what it is. The cause and cure are all confused here. The drinker can look at the happy, sober people with bewilderment at their inability to experience the white logic for themselves. Now, does the drinker see it and therefore drink because he sees that life has no purpose or meaning or that it provides these moments of happiness in this very bleak reality? Or is it that alcohol cultivates the white logic? There are several moments when London describes this. He has a conversation with the white logic. It's not a conversation with John Barleycorn. I don't remember anywhere in the book where he has a conversation with John Barleycorn. He uses him as a character, but it's never he never dialogues with him, but he dialogues with the white logic. And there are several moments when London describes the white logic as the one asking London to lift the glass. It's not the other way around. It's not John Barleycorn talking to him saying, accept the white logic. It's really the white logic that leads him to drink. So it's that it seems the relationship is it tends in that direction. The white logic engages in this long dialogue with London where he's repeatedly told to accept nihilism and along with it to accept drink. Now, many others respond to the white logic with religion, and they're listed at length in the final chapters of John Barleycorn as well. Um, What am I looking for? Metaphysicians. He talks about William James, um, various other philosophers, various creeds that kind of find their way to find meaning in life in other ways besides drink. But they don't seem to be really the way out. Now, at the end of the book, he comes to a conclusion. Now, he certainly thinks women can be the anodyne. Now, women who have been absent most of this book, he seems to think that women can be the anodyne that alcohol promises to be. And at the same time, women can be the political force that can destroy alcohol by forcing temperance on the nation. And he actually has this hope that women will get votes and then they'll push through temperance law. He doesn't seem to be aware that women are also often alcoholics. They drink differently. And I'm sure in his time, it was even more true. They drink at different times of the day. They drink more covertly than men do. It's less socially acceptable. And he seems completely unaware of the issue of female alcoholism. He just thinks women universally don't drink and would push through laws to make drinking illegal. I'm not sure that's true. Nevertheless, his conclusion is quite beautiful. He decides to transcend the white logic while not turning his back on his unfaithful and false friend, John Barleycorn. He actually says on the, the final page of the book, And so I pondered my problem. I should not care to revisit all the fair places in the world except in a fashion I visited them before, glass in hand. 
There's a magic in that phrase. It means more than all the words of the dictionary can be made to mean. It is a habit of mind to which I have been trained all my life. It is now part of the stuff that composes me. I like the bubbling play of wit, the chesty laughs, the resonant voices of men. When glass in hand, they shut the gray world outside and prop their brains with the fun and folly of an accelerated pulse. No, I decided I shall take my drink on occasion. With all the books on my shelves and all the thoughts of the thinkers shaded in my particular temperament, I decide coolly and deliberately that I should continue to do what I have been trained to want to do. I would drink, but oh, more skillfully, more discreetly than ever before. Never again would I be a periatric conflagration. Never again would I invoke the white logic. I learned how not to invoke him. So, how does he do this? Now, we, we revisit Jack London's comments on the white logic with terror and sadness. It's hard to read this and not, especially if you kind of agree with the white logic to a degree, or maybe if you've experienced this yourself while drinking. It seems very true to life to, I think, many readers. It was true to life to me. But London doesn't give you a clear solution. He gives hints of a solution, but he doesn't give you one. If there's not an anodyne available to comfort us, we can only ignore it? No, that doesn't seem right. This cosmic sadness cannot be willed away either, it seems to me. Now, it, there seems to be a handful of choices. There is London the drinker, the John Barleycorn response. This is to cynically accept the hopelessness of life. Maybe read depressing philosophers, read your Schopenhauer, read your Nietzsche. Drink too much and laugh at those who suggest that life can have any meaning beyond that. So we're all alone in the pub watching the happy people go by, cynically, bitterly scoffing at their stupidity. Meanwhile, we're giving ourselves liver disease. But then there's also, so let's not do that. That doesn't seem good for us. Well, but then we have the shallow folk who are outside the pub, the ones going to church or going, whatever, reading their happy philosophy, not reading Schopenhauer. They go through life oblivious to the white logic, accepting maybe religious consumerism, maybe the flag, or whatever other silly anodyne they want. They're not better than John Barleycorn, but at least they do a better job of keeping you alive. You're accepting an illusion, you're accepting a lie, but what's John Barleycorn except a lie? So it's almost one better, at least you're not dead at 40 from over drinking. But the choice London seems to embrace at the end is to transcend despair and the illusion. Do not buy into the anodyne. Do not wallow in sadness and depression either. And how do we do that? Well, a project like socialism may be a possibility. He talks about socialism, the people, as a solution. So there is hope in the final part of the novel. The sociability described at length in the opening chapters comes back in the final moments of the book. Where when he actually says, I'm going to go through life, drink in hand, he makes sure he adds to that. How does he put it? I like the bubbling play of wit, the chesty laughs, the resonant voices of men. When glass in hand, they shut the great world outside and prod their brains with the fun and folly of an accelerated pulse. This is the community of people. So in a sense, yeah, he's saying socialism is the solution. Now, it's a it's an aspect of socialism, not socialism itself. It's, it's a function of it, that camaraderie, that sociability, the community of, of people. Now, yeah, John Barleycorn's a, a glue that helps bind that together. But that is something valuable at the end of the day. Yeah, maybe it's better if you don't have John Barleycorn fusing it together. 
but it seems to contribute to it at least in some way. It's not a totally a total lie, right? We've all had experiences. Maybe, maybe not everyone, but many of us have the experience when we're drinking where we do have very fond memories where we don't feel we've done something stupid or we've not necessarily embraced the white logic, but alcohol played a role in that experience. And it brought us closer to other people, perhaps. Right? The, not the happy hour we drive, we go to because we're still depressed with life, but the happy hour we go to where we really want to spend some time outside of work with friends and family or whatever. So, Sociability, socialism, could be a way out here. It denies the futility of existence because it, it's celebrating something that's real. But it doesn't require lies that is based on something constructed by humans like religion, perhaps. Now, in my view, John Barleycorn is really one of Jack London's greatest works. It gives us a whole lot to think about. I think people dealing with addiction or depression may find something useful to reflect on in this book. I'm not saying it's going to call, cure anyone, but it's a point of view that I think is valuable. Especially for me, people facing depression. I think the white logic stuff is a good thing to, to think about. It's also a great memoir that, you know, as far as we can trust it, it shows us a lot about London's early life and history. So whether you come at this book as a philosopher or a historian, you'll have a real academic interest in it. But I think it may really help those who might come to it for more personal reasons that would as well. Um, so that's that's it for John Barleycorn. But I do want to talk about some of the themes of, of this book. Um, as always, I'm going to kind of run through these very quickly without too much commentary. But these are, I'm, again, I'm kind of trying to work towards an index of American writers. And so with each book, I, I kind of list some of the major themes. And so this allows us to cross-reference with other works that I'm looking at over the course of this podcast. Uh, the first one, Labor. Labor is a big one. It's maybe as much as alcohol. It's a book about alcohol, but it's also a book about work. So this is a, a labor history of, of London, more so than his other memoirs. So this is the one to go to about his life work. And even The Road is more about his life as a hobo and doesn't really say that much about work too much. Okay, it's also a friendship. And I don't know if I said this before. I probably should have with something like of Mice and Men, but you know, friendship is an important theme here, and some of these friendships seem false. But all, like just like alcoholism, and just like writing, friendship is based on habit and effort. I don't want to say work so much, but there's there's a habitualization to it, right? You meet someone, you spend some time with them, and and eventually, you learn you like this person, you want to spend more time with them, and over time, it develops into friendship. Friendships, you don't fall into friendship at first sight. You don't fall to love at first sight either, for that matter. But um, friendship's a really important theme in this book. Tied to that is masculinity. This is a very masculine, a very macho novel. Maybe the most macho novel I've looked at in this podcast, come to think of it. And that's even considering, like, Of Mice and Men. It's just, no pun intended, but drowning in, in masculinity here. Um, and thus, how one becomes a man. That's a big theme here. How Jack London became a man. Needless to say, alcohol and alcoholism is a theme of this book. Addiction as well. Depression. I shouldn't. That should be a separate issue though. But depression. Uh, death is an issue here, and especially kind of the this a death without afterlife, right? Um, tied to that, the meaning of life. Now, this is a book that's really wrestling with the meaning of life. If you accept death, and if you accept 
the lack that, that God is dead. You accept that there's no afterlife, then what is our meaning in life? So kind of depression, death, and the meaning in life all come together in this book. It's also at times, le much less so than Martin Eden, but it's a book about writing too. And especially in the second half of it, he talks about writing. And, you know, he, he reminds us that if you want to be a good writer, you have to write a lot. We got uh, travel here, travel, um, his travel through as a worker and also his travel as a as a writer of, of means. And, you know, it's it, I think someone who maybe feels really depressed and wants to travel as a way out of that depression maybe be useful to read The Voyage of the Snark, which I'm not going to look at in this podcast, at least not unless they come out with a new volume of Jack London's work. But I may personally go and visit it just because I'm curious what he has to say about it. That was like his darkest moments. The darkest time in his life was during that voyage in some ways. And, you know, it's for those who think travel creates happiness, you know, maybe, maybe that's not always the case. Religion, not really dressed directly, but he talks about it as something that he doesn't really see as a useful way of dealing with the white logic. And then finally, socialism. Socialism as with most of Jack London's novels, is there. I think I think if we're going to summarize Jack London's whole career, it's really about the the, the necessity of socialism over individualism. And I, I think that's even the case here. Like The individual can't work his way through the white logic. It's almost like you're better off drinking with a group of friends than drinking alone, right? I guess anyone who knows anything about addiction probably would agree with that. But for him, it's it's more than just a way to... Make sure you're not drinking fruitlessly. It's 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 the social bond that matters at the end of the day, and that's what socialism is supposed to be about—that camaraderie, that that willingness to sacrifice for one another, giving you a meaning. It's a it's a it's a human constructed meaning, but in a universe that doesn't have preordained meaning, we need something. And, and nihilism, fatalism, certainly isn't the response, the solution. So maybe socialism is is there. It seems to do a better job than things like freedom. Which, you know, what does that always mean? Where does that get us at the end? Okay, so those are some of the themes in John Barleycorn. Um, so this volume, it's, it's a really long volume. It's, it's not the longest I've looked at, because I think the Melville one was longer, but it's still like 1,200 pages. And it has, it, in addition to all these things, in addition to the people of the abyss and the road and the Iron Heel and Martin Eden, and then, now, and then John Barleycorn, you have four essays at the end. It's like whoever edited this, you know, really wanted to cram in as much of the important Jack Lennon works as he wanted. He could in two volumes. So these four, in the, just I'm just going to talk about these briefly, just to be complete. There's four of them. One is how he became the socialist, and his argument there is simply he became a socialist through experiencing the sufferings of the working class. He didn't start as a socialist, but through his working life, his experience as a worker, he had no choice but to become a socialist. So again, habit. So in this case, it was the habit of experiencing work and exploitation. The second essay is The Scab. The Scab is um, a criticism of strike-breaking. And it's a very famous one. It's it's used in anti in, in in union literature. It's a it's a famous essay about that. Basically, don't scab is his thesis in that essay. Uh, then he has a essay called the Jungle, 
which I read through, and it's a, it's a review of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Actually, that's Upton Sinclair hasn't been collected yet by the Library of America. Now, now sometimes they just haven't got to it. Sometimes they can't get the rights. Like, they haven't been able to publish Hemingway because of the rights. Um, but most of these writers' estates seem pretty generous with the Library of America, thankfully. But, like, we don't have Hemingway. And I, I don't know if that's with Upton Sinclair. Maybe they shouldn't get around to it yet. Or they don't think there's enough quality stuff to make a whole volume out of it. But we'll see. I, I'm sure eventually they'll get to it. But anyways, the jungle. Upton Sinclair's work, work about the Chicago meatpacking plants. Certainly the descriptions of the jungle would have been very attractive to Jack London, who is fascinated by social Darwinism. And it's a positive view. He thinks people should read it. And he d despairs that these kind of books about the working class aren't going to get a more kind of academic interest and professional interest among kind of the hoity-toity intellectuals. And the final essay is called Revolution. And I'm not going to say much about this, but just dress you back to my two episodes. There was a three. There must have been two episodes on the Iron Heel. Because it's basically a rehashing. I, I'm not actually sure which one was published first, but it's the same kind of arguments he makes in the chapters. What's that? The Arithmetic of a Dream and the Machine Breakers and a couple other chapters. It's a consolidation of the arguments in the Iron Heel made by Ernst Everhart. Uh, the main character of that novel. So there's not much new here, so I'm not going to say more about it. But these four essays cap off this volume of Jack London. So I'm not going to move to another writer for now. I'm going to stick with Jack London and, and deal with his second volume of his work. That's going to have all his Klondike writing. It's going to have The Call of the Wild, White Fang, The Klondike Tales. So that will be one, two, three, five episodes. Then there's The Seawolf, which will probably be three episodes for me to get through. And then there'll be another set of short stories, I think another 12 short stories, which include a couple of his Pacific Island tales, one or two of his ones on boxing and a few others. So um, it's going to be more as fiction. Now, we have dealt with his fiction. We had Martin Eden here, but this, is, this volume was called like Social Writings. But the volume we'll be starting next time is just stories and novels. So we'll be starting with Call of the Wild. Um, in the next episode. So um, we made it through John Barleycorn. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I really appreciate it. If you have any comments or thoughts, please send them to me at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll try to get back to you. Uh, if you enjoyed this, you might like my concurrent series, which is the Philip K. Dick Book Club, where I look at the works of Philip K. Dick using a slightly different format than what I'm doing in this podcast. Um, but otherwise, please... Um, Share this with people who might be interested. If you have thoughts about John Barleycorn, if you read this book, I would really love to, to hear what you thought of it. Um, but anyways, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. It's only half past twelve, but I don't care. It's five o'clock somewhere. Lunch break is gonna take all afternoon